Well, good morning, Lindsley Avenue. Good morning. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. So glad all of us are here today. Today's the day the world puts a lot of emphasis on the resurrection of Jesus. Unlike Christmas, where we really don't know when Jesus was born, we are in fact very confident that right at this time is an anniversary, if you will, so many years ago when Jesus was crucified and was raised from the dead. However, the Bible does not put by itself any specific emphasis on remembering that anniversary once a year, but we remember the Lord's death every time we gather together every Sunday morning. As the Apostle Paul put it, every time we gather together and every time we partake of the Lord's Supper, we, we proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. However, since, like me, I'm sure most of us are all thinking about the resurrection of Jesus, it's hard to avoid, it's not a problem with that, I want us today to look at what the Bible says about the crucifixion, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. And we're going to focus on that from the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John. So let's take a few minutes to let John do most of the talking. John do most of the talk. The Jewish leaders in Jesus' ministry began by hating Jesus and in the end killed him. When you think about it, hatred in any form is a form of insanity. And that applies every bit as much today when we see hatred in our society as it did 2,000 plus years ago. In their hatred, the Jewish leaders forgot all mercy, all sense of proportion, all sense of justice, and all their principles. And in part because they were so focused on hatred, they also forgot God. I would suggest to you it's not up here, but anyone who is consumed by hatred today has also forgotten God. There's no room for hatred in someone who wants to call themselves a child of God. And I will tell you, even though we're talking about the Jewish leaders, don't fall into a trap of thinking they are the ones responsible for the death of Jesus. Not so. All of us are just as responsible for the death of Jesus as the Jewish leaders were here. In fact, I'll go even further. If I, myself, Gene Wright, had been the only one throughout all history who had ever decided to live for himself, chosen to do what I wanted to do instead of what God would have had to do, if I had been the only one throughout history who had ever sinned, I would have been responsible for the death of Jesus because God loves me enough that he would have sent Jesus to die just for me. By extension, Every one of us in here this morning could say the same thing. If you had been the only one who had ever done anything wrong, ever done something where you chose, this is what I want to do, I don't care what God wants me to do, and every single one of us have done that, you or I would have been just as responsible, equally responsible, for the death of Jesus, the need for Jesus to come, the need for Jesus to die, as anyone we're going to read about here in the Gospel of John. 
we need to think about that, I believe, more often. Because it's easy to get kind of academically disassociated at a distance and read these things that are going on here. But in John 3.16, it says, God loved the world so much. He could just as easily have said, God loved you so much that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him might have life, should not perish. Well, when it says God loved the world, each of us could put our own name in there. God loved Gene Wright so much. It makes it a whole lot more personal when we think about it that way. So as we're reading about the death of Jesus and the resurrection, please, please today focus on the personal, individual aspect. Put yourself as not only the cause for what's about to happen to Jesus that we're going to read, which is terrible, but the joy in what God does with that situation. Picking up in John chapter 19, and we're not going to read every verse in 19 and 20. We start off in John chapter 19, it begins, So then Pilate, Pilate is the procurator of the province of Judea. He is the power of Rome, ruling over the province, the area of Judea where the Jewish people were primarily living and also up in uh, Galilee. First, when Pilate is brought Jesus, he tries to refuse to deal with the case. He doesn't want to mess with it, he pushes it off towards someone else. Then he tried to release Jesus because of a Passover custom that had developed of releasing somebody accused of a crime and showing mercy, the mercy of Rome. When that doesn't work, then he scourges Jesus. It's been called a living death. If you've ever had the opportunity to try to watch and finish The Passion of the Christ, the movie that Mel Gibson made several years ago, you only get a glimpse of what scourging was almost certainly so if you've never seen that, if you ever have the opportunity, no matter the pain, no matter the, the excruciating problem that I have of watching that, I suggest you try it. Because the reality that Jesus went through would have been worse. If Jesus went through that for you and for me, certainly I can watch a recreation that tells me what that looked like. And so again here, he's making a final appeal to try to not put Jesus to death. Essentially, he refuses to put his foot down. He could have done whatever he wanted. He was an absolute ruler in the province. The only superior he had was hundreds and hundreds of miles away. He could have done whatever he wanted, but he preferred. So picking up, then Pilate said to him, speaking to Jesus, are you not speaking to me? Do you not know that I have the power to crucify you and the power to release you? Jesus answered, you could have no power at all against me unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. Pilate says, why aren't you paying attention to me? I can crucify you or set you free. Flip a coin, it won't really matter to me, although it sure seems to matter to Pilate because he's trying not to use his hands. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, saying, if you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend. Whoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. The last thing you want, if you're a governor of the Roman province, is to be accused of disloyalty to Rome. 
So the Jews are playing the card of, if you don't do what we want with this man, since he's claimed to be the king of the Jews, we're going to essentially tattle on you. We're going to run and tattle to Caesar and get you in a whole lot of trouble. And that puts Pilate in a box. Puts him in a box. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus out and set him down, set down in the judgment seat in the place that is called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. This uh, Pilate crucifies Jesus to keep his job. That's essentially what happens. He wants to let him go, but Pilate's so concerned to keep his job that he sends Jesus to be crucified. Sometimes we make similar, smaller compromises to avoid trouble, to avoid losing a job. People do that all the time, unfortunately, when they decide to be dishonest rather than walking away from some sort of a business situation. Pilate here has no idea, I don't think, really no idea what he's about to do and how his name would still be talked about 2,000 years later, but it's to keep his job effectively at the end of the situation. Then he decides to do this. He did not have the courage to define man or to recognize and realize God standing in front of him in the person of Jesus. Now it was the preparation day, continuing in the Gospel of John. The preparation day of the Passover about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Behold your king. It's about noon. The sixth hour means it's about noon. Jesus has had a long, long night. He's been scourged. He's standing there probably dripping blood on this pavement that Pilate had, had him standing in front of him as he sat down in the ruling chair. But the Jews cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? I can hear sarcasm in that. What a king figure Jesus must have looked like, standing there really half dead already on his feet. The chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. Well, you were talking about a sellout. They had been hoping for a long time that somebody would come and kick Rome out, and now they're claiming we'd rather be calling Caesar our king than this guy. Have brought out in front of us. How far the Jewish people have gone in their hatred of Jesus. How far they have gone in their refusal to let God rule in their lives. But remember, I'm every bit as guilty of not having God rule in my life at some point in the past as these individuals are. It's not their fault. Then he, Pilate, delivered him, Jesus, to be crucified. Then they took Jesus and led him away. He, bearing the cross, Jesus, bearing the cross, went out to a place called the place of the skull, which is in Hebrew, Golgotha, where they crucified him, two others with him, one on either side, and Jesus in the center. The nails, when they're going to place the nails and nail him to the cross, the Greek word where they place the nails, by the way, it's often thought of as hand. Sometimes you'll even see hand in the text. When you see uh, Jesus and some kind of a symbol on a cross, nails are often in the hand. That's not where they put the nails. The, na the word for hand actually means any place from the mid-forearm up to the end of the fingers. Anywhere from here up, okay? From here up. It is almost certainly not here in the palm of the hand because if you were nailed, palm of the hand, and put up on a wall or something like that, 
You wouldn't stay there for long. The hand cannot support but about 40 pounds before a nail would simply rip through between your fingers. Where they almost certainly did it is either in his wrist or in between the bones of the forearm because that can support the weight of the body of a man. The Bible is actually very correct. The word they use is a general word from here up. So don't worry if it turns out he was nailed through the wrist or the upper forearm. That's the same word that was originally written. But when you think about it, it's not the hand that's going to rip. He'd fall off the cross and have to nail him somewhere else. The feet, when they nail him to the cross in the feet, we often think, and you've seen pictures where they put the feet one over the other and nail through it. We only have one example that we've ever found by digging in the ground of what it looked like when somebody was crucified. Strangely enough, the hand, the, we have that portion of a cross that shows the feet attached to a body of wood. And at this example, the feet are not one over the other with a nail through the top of the feet. They're on either side of the piece of wood with a nail running sideways through it. The Bible doesn't say how Jesus' feet were laid on the wood. We're simply told he was nailed hands from here up, hands from there up, and feet nailed to that cross. He's secured by nails to this piece of wood and then dropped into a hole and crucified. He buried his cross, went out to the place called the place of the skull, which is in Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him and two others with him, one on one on either side and Jesus in the center. Crucifixion began all the way in the back of history with the Persians, somewhere around 500 years before the time here of Jesus. Carthage learned it from them, and then Rome learned it from Carthage. The historian Tacitus called it a despicable death, a despicable death. Cicero said it was incapable of description how horrible and horrific it was to have somebody be crucified. It was used in the land of Italy only in the revolt of Spartacus. So apparently when Kirk Douglas, right, he was the Spartacus before the others, when Kirk Douglas was rebelling against Rome, Spartacus, that's the only time they ever used crucifixion in Italy because it was just such a horrible thing. They didn't want it seen of any Roman, any Italian ever be put on the cross. But out in the provinces, they would use it pretty powerful message saying don't mess with Rome. The accused was always led through the streets of the city by the longest route possible before they were crucified for two reasons. One, to let the entire city see how much in control Rome was. Today when executions occur it's always kind of over in a corner, right? Rome didn't want it in a corner. Rome wanted everybody in a city, every provincial member that could, to see this man, this woman, being led through the streets about to be put on a cross because they want you to see, look what happens when somebody steps out against Rome. That could be you, so don't do it. But in the second place, it was also to make sure there was no witness anywhere who could still speak for the accused. Lead them all back and forth through the city, the longest route possible from where judgment was pronounced to the place of crucifixion for the small, small chance there might be somebody to say, don't do that because I know something that you ought to hear. 
When Jesus is led through the streets to the place of crucifixion, no one speaks up for Jesus. I don't think, based on the way it works here, any of us would have spoken up for him either. The disciples had run away. Remember, when we see the events that happen here, we are those people. To paraphrase on Spartacus, where everybody said, I am Spartacus, I am those people. Because I am every bit as responsible as anyone we're thinking about right here in the Gospel of John. Well, it turns out we don't really know exactly what park around Jerusalem Golgotha was. They think they know, looking at some rocks. For, uh, uh, structures that kind of look like a skull. Nobody knows. It doesn't matter. He's taken outside the city and the cross is dropped in a whole jar and as the nails pull out. Now, Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross. And the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. When many of the Jews read the title for the place where Jesus crucified was near the city, don't know exactly where, and it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. The Romans want to make sure anybody walking by can read it, if they can read it all. Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. The accused was always preceded by a Roman soldier holding a placard. Think of a single staff with the writing on it in the front. Walking around in the path that they were taking the accused so that everybody could see, what did this person do? Anybody seeing this would have seen that it said, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. King of the Jews. When you look at the words that are recorded in the New Testament of what that sign exactly says, there are some slight differences. It doesn't read exactly the same in the three places it's mentioned. I think it's because one of them is telling us how the translation came out of Greek. One's telling us how it came out of Latin. One's telling us how it came out of Hebrew or Aramaic. doesn't cause me to lose any sleep at all because we don't know if the words were exactly the same in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek anyway. The message coming across is this is the king of the Jews who's being walked off to be crucified. Therefore, the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but that he said he was the king of the Jews. Pilate really wrote this on here just to irritate the Jewish people. They weren't very friendly toward each other at all. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. And that's a perfect example of how they really don't like each other. The Jewish leaders in Jerusalem caused Pilate all sorts of trouble. Pilate's causing them trouble. Oh yeah? How do you like that, guys? It's really what Pilate's telling the Jewish people. Here's your king. I don't, little he understood the truth of what he actually had written. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts. To each soldier a part and also the tunic. Now the tunic was without seam. It was one piece. It was not something that was going to be relatively easy to break into separate pieces. This coat I'm wearing that's got a seam here, I don't think any of us would take the time, but presumably you could undo that and take a sleeve off, right? You can't do that if you've got a single piece of fabric. And so this tunic that Jesus was wearing didn't have any seams the way my jacket did. So they end up gambling through it. They said among themselves, let us not tear it, but let's cast lots for it. Get the dice out, get the knuckle bones out, whatever they were using. And this gambling for this is in order to fulfill the scripture which said, 
They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. That's in Psalm 22, fulfillment of prophecy, even as Jesus was being crucified. Therefore, the soldiers did these things. The high priest, it turns out, wore a tunic without seam. The high priest of the Jews wore a tunic without seam. That was part of his standard clothing that he wore. How interesting that, in this case, Jesus, being our high priest, the Hebrews tells us that, was also wearing a tunic that had no seam. Of all the people in this story, it's these soldiers who are in all ways the least responsible. Because they don't know what they're doing. They don't have any clue who this man is being crucified here. Who knows how many people they might have crucified in the last year or five years. However, they also, just like me, just like you, had chosen to do their own thing at some point in the past. So they are in many ways equally responsible for Jesus being on the cross as much as I am. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus, his mother, notice there's four ladies here, his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Now there's three of these ladies here that are already called Mary. What a trouble that would cause, right? You've got Mary, the mother of Jesus, his mother's sister, Jesus' aunt, Right? You've got Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene, four ladies there. We'll talk about that in just one second. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, and that kind of is a phrase that's used in the Gospel of John, almost certainly means John himself, John himself, standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. See how things have worked out for me. Here I am. Mary ought to remember, we were told she remembered all sorts of things during the life of Jesus and kept them treasured in her heart. She remembered that he was born with no earthly father. She remembered the angel that had appeared to her saying, his name shall be called Jesus because he will save his people from his sins. He says, this is it, mom. I don't mean to be disrespectful, but this is it. This is what they told you. Then he said to his disciple, Behold your mother. So he tells John, Behold your mother. He said to his mother, Behold your son. But he says to John, Behold your mother. Take care of mom. Take care of my mom. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. That disciple is John. His mother's sister, I want to talk about these four ladies. His mother's sister, this is Salome, the mother of James and John. And this is totally off to the side here, but I want to mention it. Maybe we'll talk about it some other time. It's almost certainly that James and John are Jesus' cousins. Jesus' cousins, which would explain a lot when you think about it. He has a special close relationship with James and John. It could be because they grew up together. James and John being Jesus' cousins. James and John's mother comes to Jesus and asks for a special place for her two sons, James and John, when Jesus comes into his kingdom. Kind of, a, kind of a big, bold request, don't you think, for this woman to come in? Maybe not, if that was Jesus' aunt who had seen him growing up. That would also explain, perhaps, why John is the one to whom care of Jesus' mother is given. He's already her nephew, and she's already John's aunt. Uh, Mary of Magdala, whom Jesus cast the seven demons. And so even here at the end of his life, Jesus cares for his mother. This is a chart 
You can look at it sometime if you want. It's in the handout. It's not the important thing today at all. But this records that Matthew, Mark, and John, the four ladies who are listed as being at the cross of Jesus and identifying a cross, identifying them, and that's why I've been fairly sure for some time. I'll say 90 plus percent sure that James and John are Jesus' cousins. Take a look at it sometime. It is not the important thing today, but I can't pass it by without mentioning it. Back to the important aspect here. John 19, picking up in verse 25. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Jesus was human. He was also divine. Someone that is merely a ghost, giving the appearance of having a body, would not have any need to be thirsty. But Jesus says, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with the sour wine, put it on a hyssop, and held it up on a stick. They stabbed it with a stick, held it up to it. Hyssop was used in the Passover feast, and it's Passover time that is being used, the, the time here that Jesus is actually being crucified. Any Jewish person would have understood the reference of hyssop being applied to the Passover lamb, which is what the Jewish people did. Jesus is the Passover lamb. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. When he says it is finished, that is one Greek word. The Greek word is petilistai. And it's usually said as kind of a loud statement of fact. It's done. Is really the point he's making. It's it. It's accomplished. And so he does not end up dying here with defeat, but with a shout of triumph. I have, Paul would say, Grant fought the good fight, finished the race. Jesus has accomplished what God had planned throughout all eternity before he ever thought of, and really came to the point of creating you and me. We then read, and bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. The word here for bowing his head is the same word that would have been used for laying your head down on a pillow. If you lay your head down on a pillow to go to sleep, that's the imagery being used here of Jesus. Even after all of this terrible suffering, the great task was over, and he was at rest and at peace. And there's a great deal to be noticed there for us, because Jesus did the hard part. Jesus did the part we could never possibly have done. And what remains for us, coming to Jesus, is nothing but rest and peace. Jesus did the work. The offer is now to each of us to come to him through the offer of rest and peace. Let's look at the actual resurrection itself after his death. After this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took the body of Jesus, and Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, all the way back in the third chapter of the Gospel of John, uh, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 100 pounds. Then they took the body of Jesus and bound it in strips of linen with the spices, as the custom of the Jews is to bury. Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So there they laid Jesus because of the Jews' preparation day for the tomb was nearby. They needed to get Jesus into a tomb before the Sabbath, the Passover, started. They didn't have a whole lot of time, so they used the tomb. As it turns out, it was buried nearby. 
where Jesus had been crucified. Jesus' death is in many ways more powerful than his life. I know that sounds odd, but it is. In his life, these two men had been secret disciples. We're talking about Joseph of Arimathea here. He was afraid of the Jews. When Jesus dies, their fear is gone. They're not worried anymore about what the Jewish people will say because they now see the power of Jesus. They come out and say, we believe in this man. Jesus' death changes everything. It is the focal point of history. It should be, it needs to be the focal point of my life. It needs to be the focal point of your life. more things. Now on the first day of the week, that was all Friday afternoon, late Sunday morning, the first day of the week Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was yet dark. The Jewish custom was to visit the tomb of a dead person for up to three days after they had died. They believed this is not found in the Bible. This was their thinking, their, their, their superstitions if you will. They believed that the spirit of a dead person hung around where they had died for up to three days. And only after three days did the Spirit depart to go back to God. That's not supported by the Bible. But that's what they thought back in the first century. You can read that in Jewish writings at the time. Because by then the body would have started to decay. We don't see bodies that have been three days dead. We don't. We hardly see dead animals unless it's roadkill. We are not nearly as familiar with death as they were. But after three days... Not refrigerated. The body starts bloating. The person is in a state of decay. And they believed at that point, the spirit, as if the spirit didn't recognize the body anymore, their way of thinking so the spirit would have gone. Somebody dead two minutes, the body looks pretty much like it did two minutes earlier, right? That's what they were thinking, but that's their, their superstition, their general belief. It's not in the Bible. But she comes on the third day. Jesus' friends and family could not have visited on the Sabbath. They weren't supposed to go near a dead person on the Sabbath because they wouldn't have been able to partake of Passover. So Sunday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday is the first day they can visit, which is also the third day. Jewish people counted a part of the day as a whole day, the third day. Now it was the first day of the week, as we just read a moment ago, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early. While it was still dark, and she saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. The word for early is used for the last hour of the watch of the night. You think about somebody keeping watch. The, the sky turns that kind of brightish light pink or blue as it's getting toward daylight. That's the time we're talking about. The sun is not yet, but it's coming. And in fact, that plays into here because the sun is not quite up yet. Why did she come so early? I would suggest maybe it's simply because she loved Jesus so much she just couldn't stay away any longer. Mary Magdalene, of all people, shows just a simple, pure love for Jesus that we ought to show. Sometimes it seems we're, we're too sophisticated or too caught up. Maybe in herself she's not. She's going to hang around after the other disciples have left at the empty tomb crying because she doesn't know where Jesus' body is. When she gets there, she finds the stone removed, and she thinks somebody's broken into the tomb, 
the soul of the body. Maybe we could desecrate it. She's afraid. She wants to know where the body is so she can take care of it. Even after he's dead, she still focuses on the love she has for Jesus. She comes, sees the tomb is open. The body's not there. It says then she ran and came to Simon Peter and to that other disciple whom Jesus loved, which again we know is John. And she said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Peter therefore went out and the other disciples, so Peter and John run to the tomb. And they were going to the tomb, so they both ran together, and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. John is younger, and John is faster. It's not a good idea to get in a race with somebody a lot younger than you. You're going to lose. John gets there faster than Peter. What do they find? He, John, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen cloths lying there, yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him. Peter goes into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the handkerchief that had been around the head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together by itself. The inside of the tomb is orderly. It's orderly. It's not the way it would have looked if it had been rock. The Greek word for lying there, the linen cloths lying there, means they were in the exact place they would have been had the body still been laying there. They're not hanging on a hook over in the corner. They're not thrown in the floor. It's as if the body of Jesus simply disappeared out from beneath these cloths that they found the body. Also note, there's a linen cloth and a separate handkerchief for the head. As a very, very side note, the Shroud of Turin that's often put forward as if it was the burial cloth of Jesus. You may have heard and seen pictures of that. It's a fake. That's not how Jesus was buried. There were two separate cloths. The Shroud of Turin looks like one cloth put over a body. I don't know how old it is or where it came from, but it's not what John says the cloth of Jesus looked like because there were two. A separate cloth that would have been over Jesus' grave. Then the other disciple who came to the tomb first, went in also, he saw and believed. Believed what? Not that the body had been stolen. It occurs to John first of anyone that Jesus had been raised from the dead. That's the point of that statement right here. For as yet they did not know the scripture. Up to that point they did not know the scripture, did not understand what Jesus had told them, that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again to their own homes. John is the first person to truly grasp the idea, believe that Jesus had been raised from the dead. Then that same day at evening, but being the first day of the week when the doors were shut, when the disciples were assembled for the fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. The disciples on that Sunday evening, Sunday afternoon, Sunday evening, we're still afraid of the Jewish people. After all, the Jewish leaders had just taken Jesus away and killed him. Are we next? Is what they were worried about. And while they're gathered together worried, Jesus comes and says, Peace to you. Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. John closes the book entire book by putting his own seal of his testimony. He says, I saw these things. These things happened. I saw them. I want to tell him about them. John 20, 30 through 31. 
John says, truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and that believing, look at what he says now, believing you might have life. There are too many things to write them down. All the things that Jesus did, John exaggerates saying, I suppose the world itself could not hold all the books. I guess the Library of Congress, I've never seen it. It's got a lot of books in it. The Metro Public Library has a lot of books in it. John says, I could write my entire life and not write it all down. Jesus did so much for so many. But the things that we do have written down, John says, are written that we might have life in his name. These things are written that we might believe and have life. My appeal to you today, the appeal John would make today, the reason Jesus died and was raised from the dead is that you might take hold of the opportunity to have life, real life, not very distant. So if you are not yet a child of God, if you're not yet a member of God's family, this is the time to quit living for yourself the way we all have at some point in the past. To begin living for God and to put love of God and love of neighbor into your life each and every day. It's going to get better if you put Jesus in control. If you're already a member of God's family, but things have simply not been going well for you. If you've had trouble, if you've struggled making those choices of living for God and you find yourself living for yourself way too often. If you need encouragement, we are here to pray with you. God will gladly forgive if you repent, if you say, I need help, Lord. Help my unbelief. If there's any way in which we can help you, the call that was issued in the first century of come to Jesus, become a member of his family, hand your life over to him, 